From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. On this week's program, it's estimated that some 5 million Americans, age 65 and older, may have Alzheimer's disease. And with an aging population that's only getting bigger, that number is expected to increase dramatically in the next few years. We'll hear about the latest in Alzheimer's disease treatments and the search for a cure. Dr. Ronald Peterson, director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, joins us to talk about developments in Alzheimer's research and care. Also on the program, Dr. Amit Sood and Meditation 2.0, how to unplug yourself using moments of meditation during even the busiest of days. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, it's been almost 110 years since Alois Alzheimer linked symptoms of memory loss to microscopic changes in the brain. The disease he described, which of course now bears his name, continues to challenge scientists and clinicians who are looking for ways to treat and hopefully, perhaps, someday cure Alzheimer's disease. One of those researchers is Dr. Ronald Peterson. Dr. Peterson is the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, and he's here to talk about the state of the battle to find more effective treatments and perhaps one day a cure for Alzheimer's. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Peterson. Thanks very much, Tracy and Tom. Yeah, good to see you, Ron. You know, it, this brings back the memory of the day. It was a Saturday. We were in a studio at KR. ROC, and you were there talking about Alzheimer's disease, and you knew, and you were one of the few people in the world who knew that Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's disease, and it was announced that afternoon. Do you recall that? I do very well. It was November of 1994, and uh, Mrs. Reagan said that it was time to make the announcement, and that afternoon, she made the press release, and she had spoken to myself and the president's other physicians the day before and said, uh, we're going to make the announcement tomorrow, but remember that after we make this announcement, this will be the last thing you'll ever say about this. And we said, of course, Mrs. Reagan, just like any patient, it's privacy. So that was the last thing we said for five or so years anyway. Well, and, you know, it's interesting that you and I can both remember that, even though I don't know about you, but I, the dementia has started uh, probably at age 65 or so. But it, it, one of the interesting things about Alzheimer's that I've heard you say before is that it often affects your short-term memory first, depending on the part of the brain that's involved, and that's why you can remember who you took to the senior prom, but you can't remember what you had for lunch. That's exactly right. So the region of the brain that's usually involved with Alzheimer's disease initially is what's called the hippocampus or the medial temporal lobe, the inside of the temporal lobe. That's the part of the brain that allows us to lay down new memories and recall recently experienced events. However, the stuff that we did 20, 30, 40 years ago is distributed elsewhere in the brain. And so while ultimately it becomes affected by Alzheimer's disease, it's many years down the road. So it's almost always starts in this particular part of the brain that's responsible for shorter-term memory. That's right, and that's a big question in the field. Why? Why is it that particular part of the brain that's most vulnerable to this disease process? We think we have some ideas about it, but uh, haven't nailed that down. Where are we at now? What do we know now that we didn't know 20 years ago? Well, I think a big difference we know right now is that we do not have to wait for the autopsy 
in mm-hmm. essence, to make the diagnosis. We can be pretty certain with the clinical picture of somebody's forgetfulness, their behavioral patterns, and now we have imaging modalities that allow us to look inside the brain, actually, and look at these various proteins in the brain that cause the plaques and the tangles. So we can do PET scans now to pick up the amyloid protein in the plaque, the tau protein in the tangle. So we can be pretty certain if a person has the clinical picture of forgetfulness, progressing behavioral problems, and we do these scans that all, in all likelihood, it's Alzheimer's disease. So this, these tests are fairly specific for Alzheimer's disease as opposed to other forms of dementia? Well, that's a good question, Tom. Um, not actually, because uh, amyloid can be seen in other conditions, and clearly tau, the tau protein, can be seen in other conditions like frontotemporal, lobar degeneration, a variety of aphasias, and, and even a chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the head injury type of dementia, does have tau in it. So it's not absolutely specific, but if you put the clinical picture together, with those two imaging modalities, you can be pretty certain. I hate to even ask the question, but does it really matter? I think it does. I mean, I think most people want to know if they're symptomatic, what's going on. Is this Alzheimer's disease? Can we do something about it? Well, we don't have the cure, so to speak, that we can take the plaques and tangles out of the brain. But we can do a lot of things for people. We can treat them symptomatically with medications. We can educate them and the family as to what's the, what to expect. We try to encourage people to be intellectually active, physically active. So there are things we can do. So it is important, but at the same time, it's a very individual decision. Can you uh, just stop for one second because you've got the plaques and the tangles and tau. You've thrown a lot of, a lot of terms out there. Explain to me what those things are. Well, these are two... This is is only an hour show. I know. (laughs) I just want to set some ground rules here. Amyloid and tau are two proteins in the brain. They're actually normal proteins that have a function in the brain. But when they become misprocessed, either cleaved abnormally or they start binding to each other abnormally, then that starts to disrupt neuronal function or nerve cell function. And when that happens in the memory part of the brain... You become forgetful when it happens in for the behavior part of the brain. Your behavior becomes abnormal. There are parts, uh, like Tom said, when you can't remember what you had for lunch or where did I park my car. People will diagnose themselves and maybe joke about the fact that oh, I've got my Alzheimer's starting. I don't know what it is. I don't know where things something is. But that self-diagnosis aside, how do you diagnose Alzheimer's disease? Well, you you raise an important issue, Tracy, insofar as that some forgetfulness is a part of normal aging. Now, the question becomes, what's normal aging? And, in fact, we mentioned this tau protein. It does build up in many people over the lifespan. So is that, in fact, a part of normal aging? We think so. So I think that incidental forgetfulness, where are my car keys, where are my reading glasses, That type of stuff happens quite commonly, in fact, very frequently in aging. But when we start to forget important information, information that we formerly would have remembered quite easily, such as luncheon engagements, appointments with friends, doctors, things of that nature, and that's a different pattern from what we've experienced in the past, then we might become suspicious. Again, it's not diagnostic, but it indicates we maybe have to look a little bit more closely. I think... um You've said in the past that when President Reagan was diagnosed, that it was kind of opening the door and turning the lights on for people to say, oh, my gosh, that's what our mom has, or that's what happened to our uncle who died 15 years ago. That's what was going on with him. Um, I had to think of that time and in that anecdote that you've shared when I was watching some of the Glenn Campbell documentary, which you are in. People can see you in that movie. But that has to be another level of awareness for people to maybe have some more compassion 
for the caregivers and for the families of people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Certainly, you're right. Uh, when when President Reagan and Mrs. Reagan announced this, it was uh, a revelation to people that, gee, if the President of the United States can get this, I can get this, or anybody can get this. Similarly with Glenn Campbell, somebody who's been uh, out in the forefront in front of people for decades and decades and now has become impaired by this disease. But at the same time, the positive uplifting note is that he kept on doing what he does so well, performing and entertaining, far into the disease process. And I think that was uh, an uplifting message for many people. Has the documentary been well-received? It has. Um, it's received several awards. Some of the music from it has uh, won Grammy Awards. It was uh, uh, nominated for, for an Oscar song mm-hmm. there as well. Yeah, he and wrote this song, correct? He did. About, he did. about and, his disease. And, 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 and Julian Raymond uh, wrote it with him. But it was about, it was really to his wife, Kim, saying that I'm not going to miss you because of this disease process. So it's really a very poignant song, a very emotional song, and um, I, I think the documentary has been very well received by families and individuals who have experienced this disease. Do you know, was it his idea to say, let's put this all out on show, all the good, bad, and the ugly? Well, the interesting thing happened when he finished his last album, Ghost on the Canvas, and usually after one produces an album, you go on tour. So they were just at that juncture when the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease was made. So the family, Glenn, the team sat down and said, what are we going to do now? And Glenn's reaction was, let's do it. Let's go out. Let's, let's tour. Let's, let's uh, let everybody know that we can still perform. We can, we can promote our music and uh, live a fairly normal life. So that was the decision he, the family, and the team made, and they did it. We're talking with Dr. Ronald Peterson about Alzheimer's disease research and treatment. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the latest treatments available for Alzheimer's disease and the latest research. How close are we to a breakthrough in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease and possibly a cure? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shaw. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Alzheimer's expert and neurologist Dr. Ronald Peterson of the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Peterson, we were speaking earlier about Glenn Campbell's movie and his progression through Alzheimer's disease. One of the things that's so interesting is how he was able to just get on stage and perform. How does that brain kick in and bring that to him? Well, he was quite remarkable in that uh, the disease affected him like it affects many other people with severe memory loss. So it was quite evident that he had difficulty remembering what the date was, where we were at any particular point in time, yet he could get on the stage, the lights had come up, the band would start and it was business as usual you close your eyes and this is glenn campbell can't be anyone else now he did have the lyrics presented for him on a teleprompter songs that he had been doing for many many decades he still needed the lyrics yet he could play the instrumental parts just like always he was a fabulous musician and that remained preserved far into the disease and i think that's because the part of the brain that allows one to do motor skills Mm. is affected much later in the disease process than say verbal memory and the, the memory for the lyrics Unbelievable. The uh, Alzheimer's does shorten your your lifespan, right? Uh, what's it the does. average period of time between onset or diagnosis and, and death? Very variable, actually, but we can talk about numbers of from diagnosis to death, death roughly six to eight years. 
but people can go out 20 years or longer with the disease process. Occasionally there's a very aggressive form that may take someone away in a few years, but generally it's uh, 8 to 10 years. And what's the average delay in diagnosis? Do you know that between the onset of symptoms and when they actually get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's? Well, that's a concern. That's a problem out there. Not only the delay between onset of symptoms and diagnosis, but all of the cases that are undiagnosed. The people out there uh, in their 70s and 80s. Some estimate that it may be 50% of the entire population of people with Alzheimer's disease, only 50% of them get diagnosed. So that's a big concern when it comes to managing not only this, but their other medical problems as well. So, But it is important to, to get it diagnosed, correct? Not because you can shorten the period of time that they have disease uh, and not that you can you can't really change the progression of the disease or improve that but you can improve the symptoms right is that where we're saying now absolutely we can improve the symptoms we can manage the life improve the quality of life for the individual and very importantly we can put that into the general mix of their other medical issues so if somebody is aging and has diabetes It's very important to know that they might have diabetes and Alzheimer's disease because it's going to affect the management of their diabetes. Mm -hmm. They won't be able to manage it. They won't be able to measure their glucose, take the appropriate medications. So it's absolutely vital to know that somebody has cognitive impairment for their own quality of life as well as management of other medical issues. Are there new ways that you can predict that risk? I mean, in the the past, you've just had to wait for people to start showing symptoms. Is there now ways that you can figure out the risk of Alzheimer's disease? Actually, we are just publishing a paper in the journal called Neurology in a couple of weeks from the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging here in Rochester, Minnesota, where we've looked at people who are just aging in the community, and we've tried to develop a risk formula for individuals developing cognitive impairment. So we've developed a multi-stage model. The first stage of the model is just taking the medical history background. So the age, education, sex, other medical problems the person may have. Based on that, we can roughly stratify people into, say, high, medium, and low risk. Then we bring the person into the office, a primary care situation such that the primary physician can do, say, a mental status exam, an inventory of anxiety, depression, and believe it or not, just measure how long it takes the people to walk, say, 15 meters, so just their gait speed. You add that to the medical history prediction formula, and it improves one's ability to predict the risk. Then we may draw a blood test and add a little genetic feature called apolipoprotein E, and for a particular variety, that's a blood test. That's a blood so, test. Okay. And so, if we do that and we get a particular variety of that particular protein, it adds the prediction value. So we can really stratify people into high, medium, and low risk. Then we might allocate the more expensive biomarker tests, the MRI scans, the PET scans, the spinal taps. But based on that risk formula, we'll be able to do it more intelligently. So obviously, the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is is age. Uh, what are some of the other risk factors? I think family history. What else? Age, family history, history of head trauma, and in some... Multiple concussions, for example? It can. It can actually increase your risk of getting other types of encephalopathy, as they call it, the CTE, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy that's become popular. Dementia that may not be Alzheimer's? It's correct. It may not be due to the actual proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease, but it also may increase the risk for uh, Alzheimer's disease as well. There are cardiovascular risk factors, so diabetes, certain forms of heart disease, stroke, can actually increase your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease as well as 
cognitive impairment. Is there one great big uh, breakthrough that is just without of reach, or are you still just trying to figure it out little bit by little bit? Or is that going to be announced this afternoon, and you just can't tell? <laughs> that? That's right. Yeah, I have a history of that, don't yeah. I? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I think that we're at the cusp of being able to develop some treatments for some of these underlying protein abnormalities. I mentioned earlier this amyloid protein, this tau protein. Several drug studies are underway now attacking these proteins, either stopping their abnormal processing in the brain or trying to remove them from the brain. And while we've been relatively unfortunate thus far in developing one, I think it's not too far down the road that we'll be able to to do that. You've been spending time speaking with our state legislators here in Minnesota, and nationally I know that you go out to Washington, D.C. What do you, what do you tell politicians? What is that angle of, of fighting Alzheimer's disease? Well, on the one hand, it's, it's easy to relate to the politicians because many of them are affected either in their family or have friends who are, in, who are affected by the disease. But the argument that we try to make is in addition to the personal suffering, the family suffering with this disease, the economic issue, because it costs this country around $216 billion, with a B, billion dollars to care for people with Alzheimer's disease right now. Two-thirds of that money comes from the federal government, Medicare and Medicaid, and yet we don't have any treatments for this disease. We spend less than $1 billion a year doing research. We're trying to say if we spent 1% of all the cost of care on research, we could, in fact, have an impact because this has happened in cancer. It's happened in heart disease. It's happened in HIV AIDS. All of those diseases have much larger budgets for research than Alzheimer's, yet Alzheimer's disease may be the single disorder that brings the healthcare system to its knees. Is Are you getting any traction, either nationally or I think it sounds like in the state here you're getting a little more at our legislature. Well, uh, a few years ago, Congress passed the National Alzheimer's Project Act, and this was the first step. This required that the Secretary of Health and Human Services, then Kathleen Sebelius, develop the first national plan to address Alzheimer's disease. That was done in 2012, and each year we've been revising it. And this year there's a new law that has been passed called the Alzheimer's Accountability Act, which now requires that the National Institutes of Health actually develop a budget that will get us to the goal of having an effective treatment for this disease by 2025. So they really have to look at it seriously. How much money is it going to take from this year to next year and then to get us to the goal by 2025? And that's a big step, and I think uh, Congress has asked for that. We're about to uh, present them with what's called a professional judgment budget. That is really the budget that's required, and we'll see what happens. Because we're going to run out of money if we don't get this problem solved fairly soon. Absolutely. Dr. Ronald Peterson, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom and Tracy. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Amit Sood, author of Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living, joins us. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. How do you wash your dishes, by hand or in the washer? Well, researchers from Sweden found that the kids and families who wash dishes by hand have a 40% lower risk of developing allergies than kids whose families use dishwashers. Results of the study published in the journal Pediatrics support what's called the hygiene hypothesis, which is basically the idea that exposure to microbes early on helps your immune system build tolerance against allergies. So, does this new info about dishwashing mean you should change the way you do things at home? 
home. Here's Mayo Clinic Dr. Pratish Tosh. You know, this should not convince a family to you know, not buy a dishwasher or to start hand washing all of their dishes, but really it provides a lot of insight uh, that these bacteria that were previously largely neglected uh, are very important to our health. Dr. Tosh says more research is needed, but there is data that shows changes in the number of bacteria in your body can lead to issues such as asthma, depression, or even obesity. And by the way, he uses a dishwasher at his house. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, it is hard to imagine a time when we weren't absolutely consumed by texting, tweeting, emailing. Wait, I can remember it way back in the day. (laughs) Mobile devices, smartphones seem to rule our lives, and many of them, we use them from the time we get up in the morning until we crawl into bed at night. And don't you sometimes feel like you are too connected? I'm starting to feel a little bit less, but it's because I have met the guest that we're about to introduce here. And how to step back from that hectic pace, even for just a few minutes to regain some inner balance. How do we unplug? Our guest has some answers to those questions. He's Dr. Amit Sood. Dr. Sood is a specialist in general internal medicine at Mayo Clinic and author of the Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sood. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks, Dr. Sood. Good to have you. Are you always happy? Uh, most of the time. Are you n- never stressed? Uh, no, that's not true. You I read do, the book. I do get <laughs> <laughs> So your book, uh, The Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living, has been a huge success. How many copies have sold? Do you know? Well, I don't know the uh, precise number. We feel very rewarded, privileged that uh, it has resonated uh, with people. People are liking the concepts. Uh, they come from our heart, and they are reaching their heart. Everybody seems to be stressed out today. Are there, I, I bet if you walked out on the street and asked how many people were stressed, 80% of them would say they were, wouldn't you? Or maybe more because they're here at the Mayo Clinic for some (laughs) health reason, maybe. So what's different about today's world? Why is it that so many people feel like they're stressed? It is simply our, it's it's a problem of our brain overload. Um, Let me tell you a very quick story. I was at a party recently. I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were engaged in a very nice conversation. Halfway through it, he says, Amit, what you're saying is interesting and I like you, but I have a tremendous urge to check my emails right now, so I can't carry the conversation anymore. So we have we've gotten so busy every week. I'm sure you add a few user IDs to your list. We have 150 undone tasks at any time, so our brain is just extremely busy, and that is part of. We feel we feel we're worried about the future, insecure about the future. We've been hurt in the past, but most of the people I meet are overwhelmed by the present. 150 undone tasks. That is, that is what a study showed. Uh, they asked people how many undone tasks you have at this time, and they thought maybe five or ten, and then they were asked to actually tabulate, and the average number was about 150 undone tasks. You know how many food-related decisions you have to make each day? Oh. This is the what's for supper conundrum that just yeah, drives me crazy. Yeah, it's like people thought it's going to be about 15, and, and it was over 220 <laughs> food-related decisions. So choice overload, the paradox of choice. Uh, see, our brain gets tired every one and a half to two hours. Our brain needs rest. That's how it is designed. So the major organs in our body, brain, heart, lungs, uh, liver, and kidneys, they have their they have moments of acceleration, and then there are periods of idling, like any engine. But we don't give our brain time to rest. And when brain doesn't get time to rest, it keeps everything active. 
Well, we may have to interrupt this in an hour or so because I have a brain rest. Huh? <laughs> well, if you're doing something that are really so, so what gets brain tired is when you're feeling judged, when you are feeling insecure, when not when you're not feeling worthy, when you're seeking out information for safety and you're not feeling safe, and and. Plain, simple curiosity. When you're externally driven, then you get tired. But you, you would be in activities that you're really enjoying. You had a family dinner, and everybody's loving and chatting and enjoying. Four hours, it, it feels like two minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Because at that time, brain is in a state of flow. It is enjoying. It is not feeling threatened. But the world, the way today is, we've become, we've gone from disconnected to connected to hyperconnected, and we are constantly seeking information for safety and curiosity at the at the cost of connection. I think so. And that is a big challenge. To use your example, if you've got this wonderful family dinner, you know all the people that you love at the table, and you're relaxed for a moment. It, it seems to me that then it becomes a habit, though, if you are constantly to use the, the metaphor that you have given me, the, all the open files going on your computer top. If you've got all these open files going, even when you sit down to a lovely meal with people that you love, your brain is conditioned to be going bup, 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 through these lists of things. Is it? Does that actually become a habit, let alone your devices that you can, are connected to? Does that become a habit the way it you look does, at it? It does. It does. And this is how, again, brain operates, that when you repeat a behavior over and over, it gets uh, transmitted, it gets sort of ingrained within our uh, hard wire of the brain, and then that is how we become. It's like, you know, remember when you were two-year-old or three-year-old, I'm sure you don't remember, but your mommy must have needed to push you to brush your teeth, mm-hmm. but it is now habit. Mm-hmm. Similarly, when we get used to taking out our cell phones and checking our emails, mm-hmm. you know, that curiosity factor, emails are virtual hugs. What, what are they thinking about mm-hmm. me? Who said what? Uh, then it becomes a habit. And uh, the, it comes at the cost of real meaningful connection. Uh, what we innately enjoy, I was thinking one day, we, we innately enjoy meaningful connections. We enjoy nature. Uh, we enjoy creative activities and we enjoy guilt-free eating. Those are the four <laughs> things we enjoy and we have systematically tarnished all four of them because of being so much plugged. I don't think all of my emails are virtual hugs. No, <laughs> that's what I'm just going to say. We use, we use uh, email for work. And so yes. those are not virtual hugs. That then becomes another list of something to do. See, this is how it happened. We were disconnected. And, and so, so remember, I think we, Tom, you and I, we, we know that we used to get telegrams when there was something important or money orders to get money from parents. Uh, but now it's wire transfers and texts. So there was those times we were disconnected. We didn't know what was happening. When I first came to, came to U.S., there were hardly any cell phones. So I would write a letter to my parents and it would take a week for them to know about me. Then and we got connected. And that is why these devices came. They connected us to each other. And now we are hyper-connected. So the challenge is for us. We, we, have to, we have to use these devices to enhance our relationship. We, used to, we have to develop a healthy relationship with these devices. We can't divorce them. We have to find a healthy relationship. They are our surrogate body parts now. And, and it's hard to truly take time off from work anymore. It used to be that you would go on vacation, and the only way they could get a hold of you is if your secretary could call the hotel, leave a message, and you would call her back. Now you're connected all the time, and not only to your, your friends and family, but also to your, your job, which makes I think it makes it difficult because if you ignore all of those emails about your job and about your patients for a week, you're inundated when you get when you get back. 
Absolutely, and that is an expectation now, isn't it? So 90% of people take cell phones uh, uh, during vacations. About two-thirds of the people check their emails when they're on vacation. So that has become a basic expectation. And most of us are, are not lucky enough to say, I'm not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, there are few perhaps. But So this is a requirement. What we try to help people with is how can you find moments during the day when you can unplug in the heat of activity so you do not reach that burning point so that your brain is not boiling over and then you need you burn out you need a week's worth of unplugging so how can you sprinkle moments of unplugging multiple times during the day I think that's where the money is we're talking with Dr. Amit Sood about managing stress and learning to unplug from some of life's daily demands we're going to take a short break and when we come back myth or matter of fact your brain and mind work very hard to keep you stressed to keep you stressed myth or matter Matter of fact, you're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're here with Mayo Clinic Stress Management Specialist, Dr. Ahmed Sood, author of the book, The Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. So, Dr. Sood, we've talked about all the problems that connectedness causes. We've talked about being unplugged. So, do you recommend that at certain times during the day or the week you truly do become unplugged? Absolutely. And and there are tricks, there are ways of doing that. And uh, what you do, so when, when we talk about unplugging, see, brain is constantly active all day long. You can't empty your brain. Oh, so yeah, we got to st- stick this in there. Then myth or matter of fact, your brain and mind work to keep you stressed. Yes, they do. So uh, that fixed to this. So, 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 yes, that is true. So, there, so the main job of your brain and mind is to keep you alive and safe. And there is so much information now filtering through the, through the news channels that is tell, telling us that the world is unsafe. So, so while this is not what brains and minds intention is to give us, uh, to keep us stressed, but that is what they end up doing. Uh, they end up working very hard to, to steal away our happiness. Brain was designed for safety and survival and reproduction. It was not designed for peace and happiness. So you have to tweak it. You have to work with it to get your peace and happiness. When we were cavemen and women, we used to just have to watch out for the lions and go out and chase down some food, and that is the brain survival that you're talking about. Absolutely. But we, so we are naturally curious because if I, need, if I have more information, then I'll be safer. So, so that is what these smartphones and gadgets have done, and, and media filters all that information to us. What we don't realize is what is the greatest value that will keep us safe is our connections. And so just to be clear, your brain is designed to look out for danger. And so since we don't have the caveman problems that we used to have now that's why the news reports and things like that affect us so strongly? That is part of ah. it. That is part of it. So, And the second part of it is when we do not have the need to pay attention externally for safety, guess where your threats are? Inside your head. Mm-hmm. See, you, you're not as worried about physical uh, challenges, at, at least in the part of the world where we live, thankfully, but we're worried about disappointing people, missing deadlines. You know, we get upset if someone doesn't smile at us while crossing uh, in the lobby, right? Or someone doesn't respond to our email. So emotional threats. We have a lot of emotional or psychological threats, and that is what we get busy in. And, and so when you don't feel safe and you don't feel worthy, so that is what brain is busy all the time with, and which prevents us from getting to the depth of life's experiences. You talked about the importance of, of connectedness. So do you mean relationships? Relationships. So coming back to your question, Tom, you were saying, how do you 
disconnect is should we unplug multiple times during the day and i think that is the solution for the modern time so 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 what you do is every one and a half to two hours our brain gets tired so every one and a half to two hours find some activity where you're not just driven by habits or needs you choose something to entertain you it could be uh, taking a stroll for three minutes and just looking at something interesting it could be calling your mom it could be sending silent gratitude to five people it could be sending silent good wish to a few people it could be eating an apple it could be watching a nice interesting youtube video so something where you choose where you're actively involved and uh, something that nourishes you hmm. every uh, hour and a half or two every hours one and a half you should do that hours. so you will keep fresh then all day long and when you go back home at six o'clock in the evening when you meet your kids or your family you won't be like oh do nobody talk to me now because <laughs> i'm <laughs> i'm highly irritable and 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 so danger you know caution clarify for me though how watching a youtube video is the same as sending five silent wishes of gratitude or eating an apple because in my head Watching a YouTube video leads to checking emails, leads to, oh, I have to send a text because the device is in my hand. Yeah, so uh, they're not identical, but in some ways, uh, so what, what I'm suggesting is to offer different kinds of choices for people. So, for example, yesterday morning, I woke up and I was really hungry to listen to Olaf and his song about you, you know the snowman. Build a snowman. Yes, okay. and, and his he was getting gorgeously tan. And whenever <laughs> because I watched you've got that, little girls at your house. Yes, yeah. and I enjoyed too. I mean, he's so cute yeah. and he walks and he's singing. And in the summer, I can't do it. My yeah. girls start crying if I try to sing it. I'm very bad at that. But I mean, what's wrong with watching that when you wake up? I mean, to me, it's a, it's a very interesting song about hope and dream and beauty sure. and kindness. So so that is. what i mean by youtube video i don't mean uh, to, to you know again you don't want to watch something that just takes away your sense of safety gotcha. um you mentioned children and i think about this having kids that are teens and preteens now that they are growing up in an age they will never not have a smartphone or an ipad or that connectedness they are growing up with that what are some parenting advice that you might have when it comes to helping kids to unplug helping teens to unplug So the danger is that if I have 10,000 followers on Facebook where is the need to hug my mom <laughs> uh when I when I'm curious about what's happening half half a world away I don't need to know why my daughter is not smiling for the last two days uh so we get so this is so this disconnection the deepest meaning that we get in life the strongest reward the greatest happiness is is when we make others around us happy and and both ways when we share loving connecting thoughts so uh, so if we miss that we will miss out on life and and then we will live very superficially like one author said that i'm i'm i used to, earlier i used to scuba dive now i'm a guy on a jet ski <laughs> so whenever life becomes a mile broad but an inch deep uh, then our we our attention gets fragmented when our attention gets fragmented we stop we start scoring poorly on science and math we root, we lose the competitive edge that we have i mean it can just trickle down to every part of our society so that is the risk and i think it is a substantial risk do you think that the connected world uh is uh is causing a significant amount of stress under uh, among teenagers particularly young girls i just read this morning that the cdc said that the suicide rate for girls and young women in the united states continues to rise at a pace that far 
faster far outweighs that for young males. Uh, found, I found that interesting. And does this connected world have something to do with that? It does. Uh, so since 2007, the rates the rates were coming down until 2007, and now they have been rising ever since, particularly for girls. Uh, so so what happens is uh, is Tom that when you get feedbacks, for example. Uh, you get 100 feedbacks, you get 98 good feedbacks, but two are negative. The two, the negative ones are going to pinch, and they will go straight to your heart. So when you've got such a broad social media connection, a lot of people talking about you, telling stuff about you, there's going to be a few people who are going to say something bad about you. And then if there's three people saying and four uh, retweeting it, and suddenly you feel like I'm open, I'm vulnerable. So when you don't feel safe and worthy, then you, you have a low self-esteem. Most people struggle with low self-esteem that I see. Most people are walking around with a mask. M- most people I see, you know, it's, it's very common when I see patients, they say, doctor, I'm the only one, hurt, uh, one hurting. Everybody else in the lobby seems okay. Hmm. Now, if every patient is saying the same thing, hmm. so we, we, that, that's how we have this negativity bias. Uh, anyone, anyone giving negative feedback, we inflate it. Anyone giving positive feedback, we downgrade it. So let's talk about, um, we're almost out of time, but I know that there are, th- there are habits that you want us to acquire, habits that we should start trying to uh, just interject every day. What are some of those habits? Sure. Uh, so the first part is awareness, to become aware of how my brain and mind are working, which is what we've just started discussing. There are some neural predispositions that lead to suffering. So that awareness leads to intentionality, which is you learn uh, where to deploy your attention towards the most meaningful aspect of life. For example, intentionality. When you wake up in the morning, you can choose to wake up thinking about what should I do, what should I dread, or you can choose to wake up thinking about a few people in your life that you're grateful for. Mm-hmm. And and try this. Think about three or five people in the morning that you're grateful for and see how your morning goes. Before you even get out of bed. Before you get out of bed. So, so almost develop a new habit uh, of, of this, and your morning will go better. When I think about how am I grateful for my wife this morning, and she things about the same mm-hmm. for me, our connection is much healthier, much mm-hmm. better in the morning, which then trickles down to our children mm-hmm. when we have that positive energy. Uh, during the day, at least a few times, notice novelty. Have the curiosity of a three-year-old and try to get to know a daisy. Try to try to look into the eyes of your kids and your loved ones and, and notice the color of the eyes And so when you get back home. Third uh, activity is when you get back home, first three minutes, this is a three-minute rule, don't try to improve anybody because if you do that, they will associate you with feeling bad about themselves. Mm. When you're seeing random people, people you don't know, try to send them silent good wishes. And wherever, wherever you can, cultivate gratitude and compassion in your daily thoughts. That together will offer you enough, uh, to my mind, to undo, to negate all the toxic influence of us being so plugged. Great information. And if you'd like to pursue a little bit more, don't forget about the book, The Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. Thank you so much, Dr. Sood, for sharing your advice. There's a new book coming out. We have to have you back to talk about that. Yes, it's uh, it's a book on happiness. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, we could use that. It was good to have you here. Thanks again, Dr. Sood. Thank you. So privileged to be here. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Do you have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Deepman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For 
Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.